This is episode 215, the Stem Cell Podcast, Neural Development, with Dr. Agneta Kirkaby. Hello, everybody. We are Drs. Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. As always, we are reminding our listeners about the ISSCR 2022 annual meeting taking place both virtually as well as in person in San Francisco. Advanced registration is open until April 13th. If you want to learn more about what you can expect from the meeting, check out our previous episode, ISSCR 2022, 20 Years of Excellence. That was a great chat with the leadership at the ISSCR, ISSCR CEO, President, and Vice President who are Keith Alm, Melissa Little, and Amanda Clark, respectively. Today, we have Agneta Kirkaby from the University of Copenhagen, also appointment at Lund University. She's on the podcast to talk about her research on human neural subtype specification and how to enable production of specific neurons for understanding and treating neurological diseases. We've also got a roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming right up. But first... Neuroscientists looking for more predictive power in their disease models are increasingly adopting human pluripotent stem cells in their research. Stem Cell Technologies offers products, protocols, and training to support HPSC-derived neural models. Explore their collection of technical videos and webinars on neurological disease modeling by visiting www.stemcell.com slash neural disease model. We're going to start things off with a paper that's quite high profile. It's a nature paper. It is an international effort to uh, develop potentially totipotent-like cells. This has been, of course, certainly a, a holy grail in the stem cell field is to be able to derive in vitro these quote-unquote totipotent cells, which have the potential to not only give rise to all the standard somatic tissues that pluripotent stem cells are able to give rise to, but also the extra embryonic tissues as well and the placental tissues, so on. So this is really everything that you need to give rise to an organism. And in this paper that came out in Nature titled Rolling Back of Human, Human Pluripotent Stem Cells to an Eight-Cell Embryo-Like Stage, they were able to explore this a little bit further. So this is, and like I mentioned, an international collaboration. This is folks from BGI Research, the Chinese Academy of Sciences, um, you know, a lot of folks over in the Eastern Hemisphere of the world um, were developing this transgene-free, rapid, pretty controllable method to convert pluripotent stem cells, and importantly, human pluripotent stem cells into eight-cell totipotent-like cells, okay? And certainly, you can think of the a ton of different applications that a cell like this would, would have if we're able to maintain it long-term. Um, they were able to validate these things, that they're able to generate the uh, placental tissues in, in vivo. They did some chimera experiments. You know, This isn't my exact area of expertise, so I'm going to kind of gloss over a lot of the, the deep dive here. But yeah, they did the standard characterization of these cells, uh, chimera experiments, um, they're able to show that some loss of function experiments actually had a fundamental role for this particular gene, DPPA3, which is a master regulator of uh, DNA methylation in oocytes, um, and also TPRX1, which is a totipotent cell homeobox uh, gene that's really critical 
for maintaining the potentially the totipotent state. Um, but really, it's it's the downstream application. So not only were they able to generate some of these chimeric um, early stage embryos uh, with, with placental tissues as well, but also these things, these eight cell-like cells were able to turn into something that we talk about a lot here on the show, which are blastoids, right? Uh, and also complex teratomas, which not only have the somatic tissues, but also other um, um, extra, extra embryonic tissue types as well. So it's a... It's really character, characterizing these eight cell-like cells uh, really deeply, doing a lot of genomic, epigenomic analyses on these things, uh, single cell, but it's the function. Really, the function is the, the key here. And if you're able to generate these blastoids, if you're able to generate some placental tissues, then uh, to me, this, this looks like the real deal. And I think uh, one thought is how do we actually maintain these things and expand these things long-term for real bona fide potential clinical or in vitro purposes down the road. Yeah, this is a, a, a big story that I would say, I wouldn't say it's going under the radar, but I, I, I would, at least for me, it doesn't resonate as strongly as it probably should. Because this is, I would argue, maybe kind of closing the loop um, is there a cell out there in along the spectrum of pluripotency and early pre-implantation development that we haven't identified and cultured and captured, and albeit this artifactual landscape of in vitro cellular biology? But nevertheless, I think you know we've identified pretty much all there is out there. I say now, in a few episodes, I'm sure we'll find the six C-like cell or something like that. I mean, I'm being silly, but the the reality here for me is that in spite of that big deal. Uh, kind of bombshell story. I think the resonance for me is less just because the the surfeit of 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 all these early pre-implantation uh, model type stories that we've gotten. Most notably, the blastoids. And what I mean by that is is like I understand that there's so much biology that we can unpack here using these cells. But I wonder, is there any you know practical application? Let's say we can do all of it with these cells, but is there any one thing that we can't that we can do with these cells that we can't do with others, namely like blastoids and all that you talk about these forming chimeras, you talk about forming blastoids, um, they form the complex teratomas. Uh, I'm sure there are something in there that no other cell can do. But just because we've we've come so far with the biology here, it seems like this final perhaps. Uh, mile of of the marathon is not getting as much run just because we're able to reach the the I guess experimental endpoints uh, using a lot of alternative sources. So it's a shame, I would say for me. I hope that other people aren't sleeping on this the way that I am because it is really a big story when you think about it. Yeah, I agree, and I think part of it has to do with the pace of scientific research that's going on right now. We've got so many amazing technologies that are just taking our field by storm and capturing the eye, the, the public's eye, and also the scientific eye as well, that even a huge high profile paper like this might fly a little bit under the radar. Sure. I agree with you. I think the the real next step for this and the part of, part of the way that this is going to make an even bigger splash is is the downstream applications certainly it's if you can make placental tissues uh great but really for me it's the maintenance of these cells how well can you actually maintain them in culture long term and actually on twitter 
Dr. Paul Nopfler, who is a former guest on the show, had a, an interesting comment about this particular paper and papers like this. And he, he's directly thinking about the clinical applications. He says, how long would it be until someone utilized these, these things for potential human clinical applications? And I, I responded, I said, I think we're a long, long ways away from that. But that's what we thought with CRISPR, right? We thought CRISPR would never be utilized for human embryo editing or any sort of early developmental editing like that. And we all know that that happened. So we, we say that the clinical applications for these eight cell-like cells and totipotent cells and all that are, even blastoids maybe are a very long ways away, but sometimes it just takes one rogue actor, you know? Yeah, emphasis on the rogue there. I mean, I, I, I would argue in response, and I know you, you never would have said never, but no one ever said we were never going to use the CRISPR. Just no one thought that it was going to happen so quickly. And I'm out there. I'm on the record, and I'm getting on the record here again saying that I really do not think that we should ever use ES or cell-derived gametes. Uh, I think there's just too much unknown uh, potential liability there, and I don't think it's safe. So I'm out there on the record. I'm putting myself at risk here, Arun. But um, the placental stuff, yes, I agree. You know, clinical applications there don't necessarily have to be creating a baby and, and getting the germline out there that can't be reversed. You know, you could use it for a lot of not just basic and academic study, but who knows? You know, yeah, there's a lot in IVF that's moving very fast. fast, And I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if some cellular therapy could come out of this, although I would agree with you. Very far off. Um, but that's what we always say, isn't it? Five to 10 years, maybe never, but it uh, could be tomorrow. One thing that uh, is really resonating with me, unlike this, is the, the, the difference uh, between um, mouse and human. And there is a little bit of that with this story, right? In the 8C-like cells versus the 2C-like cells in, in mouse, there's just fundamental differences in the way early development happens between these organisms in terms of the maternal zygotic transition. Um, which really underscores why we got to use human tissues and why we've made such great strides in the last couple of decades using these human cell-based models. Um, and here is another application of that uh, in the lung. So this is actually two stories, but they're very, very similar and closely aligned. Um, and they're based on the, this idea of, of the difference between mouse and human and the tremendous unmet disease burden of lung disease, namely uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is just perhaps the most notable, but there's a lot of acute and chronic lung diseases that uh, come with aging. Um, and it's not really getting much better. We don't have a lot of therapies for them. And, and when we look at the lung in a whole animal model, of course, we're looking at mice most of the time, we're not really looking at a structure that uh, it, it can be compared directly to the human. That's because in mice, uh, the conducting airways, they trans transition directly to the alveolar space, right? But in humans, the, the proximal airways, they gradually transition into this distal airway zone. And that airway zone anatomically is distinct and is made up of respiratory bronchi bronchioles as well as alveolar ducts, right? And, and not a lot is known about the cellular uh, uh, progenitors that give rise to that in, in the context of maintenance or regeneration. Um, but uh, a lot of uh, emerging evidence is suggesting that that process and that niche is being disrupted in, in several diseases, such as COPD, also in viral infections, like, you know, uh, the, the big corona, as well as aging, right? So um, 
these two studies, I think, came with that basis from different angles. Uh, this was one study from Edward Mor Morrissey's group as a, at the Perlman uh, School of Medicine in UPenn. And the other was, uh, sorry for uh, mispronouncing your name here, sir, uh, Purushothama Rao Tata. I think I did a pretty good job uh, for good. My, my friend, <laughs> our friend at Duke University, Arun, our guy. Our guy. Our, 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 you know, doing work over there. Um, so gotta gotta highlight that work um but they're both coming from essentially that same standpoint the difference and what they did uh briefly is using spatial transcriptomics from the duke group um both of them using organoids and single cell um uh they identified that there were unique cell types and there were subtle differences in in the the cell types that were identified by each group in one call there was a unipotent a unidirectional uh, progenitor, whereas uh, the other described a little bit of a nuance in terms of the differentiation potential. But the bottom line here is that there's these novel cells that haven't been described before, these respiratory airway secretory cells um, that regenerate the alveolar niche. Uh, and both studies do a little bit of mechanism showing either Notch and Wint, and in the other story uh, from Duke showing that there's these LGR5 positive fibroblasts, a lot of details there, but the bottom line here is the same, which is that there's these unique cell types in the lung uh, that we didn't really know were there, uh, describing how they regenerate the niche and are involved in injury, and also showing in these kind of disease models, specifically in, uh, in the context of smoking exposure from Morrissey's group, um, that these cells are disrupted. Uh, and altered in, in the context of chronic lung disease. So I, I, I'm impressed with this effort a lot from two groups showing uh, anytime you identify a novel cell type. You know, we just said, we thought we'd gotten the whole spectrum and there they are with the HC. Here we go again uh, in an organ specific context that there's these cells that we didn't even know were there and they're important. Yeah, there's a few things I really like about both of these studies. One is kind of the bigger picture. Um, how two major high profile papers, both, you know, in nature, how they manage to coordinate these things and make them happen at the same time. That, that always really impresses me because I think it also says something about the perhaps lack of ego of the authors or the co-authors um, and the senior authors for both these papers to be like, hey, we're willing to share the spotlight and the limelight with this other really cool paper that's coming out at the same time. And I'm sure coordinating this is tough because as we know nature papers take a long time to to cook and simmer and ultimately come out of the oven um so props to both these groups here for for making this work and the other part of this and i think this is something i'll expand on in my next roundup paper i'm just still so amazed that we're still finding unique cell types right there is a number out there saying that, oh, we only have like 200 distinct cell types that are found in the adult human body. But in reality, I think it's probably more than that because we're talking about some of these hybrid states, as I'll actually allude to in, in the next paper. And during the course of differentiation, as we know, I think there's no concrete distinct cell type that exists at every single time point during differentiation. It's not like you start at a stem cell and then completely end at a terminally differentiated cell type, there's a, a shift that happens during that differentiation process. So really, if you think about the semantics, perhaps the number of cell types that actually exist in the adult human body is infinite. You know, that's one way to think about it, right? 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, not just cell types we're seeing for the first time, progenitors, Arun, progenitors. So I mean, really, sure. I think underscores how how much we have to learn and, and underscoring that point as well is this idea of the fibroblasts. You know, I think fibroblasts have been appreciated traditionally as just one cell and a bunch of different places. But it, I mean, we know now for sure, and it's really just uh, uh, becoming clear how broad a spectrum of uh, different types of, of fibroblasts and their organ specificity and the vita essential uh, function that they play um, in organ regeneration and maintenance. So yeah, a lot there. And on to your first point, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. These papers, you know, they coming out on the same day. If you look at the submission date, one is four months, the Morrissey group submitted four months before the other. But, you know, there's that idea of the coordination, but also I like to think that there's a kind of convergent evolution element to it too. You know, as the tech matures and all the insights build, uh, there's a lot of groups out there that are coming, uh, arriving at the same insights um, in parallel. And it's great to see that they're able to pack them into the same same journal because these papers, you should have a look, everyone. They're, they're not really just a, a parallel track. There is some nuance here that's, that's really important. Absolutely. Take a look. And like we're alluding to, a lot of this has to do with the technologies that are coming out to actually promote these results and to lead to this amazing, these amazing data sets, right? Discovery of novel cell types that we didn't even know about. And that's kind of the, the next paper that we're going to talk about, about technologies and a new technology that's actually coming out from the lab of uh, Samantha Morris over there at WashU, Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Um, so Dr. Morris is pretty well known as a computational mastermind in the stem cell field. She is a relatively new PI, um, but has really hit the ground running and has established a number of these different computational approaches to identify and interrogate stem cell function and fate. And here they're coming out with another one in cell stem cell titled Capybara, which I love the name, by the way, Capybara, a computational tool to measure cell identity and fate transitions. And the first author here is Wenjun Kong. Before we can get started, I still have no idea why they call it Capybara. I do love Capybaras. They're cute little rodents, the biggest rodents in the world. Did you know that? Um, but yes, Capybara is the, the name of this particular tool. And they're using it to measure cell identity, as we're alluding to, in different disease states, development, and even direct reprogramming. That was another huge application of this particular technology. Traditionally, it's it's been a little challenging until the advent of single cell and all that. Um, that's when we really were able to start dissecting some of these cell states and figuring out, in particular, these hybrid cell states, as I alluded to in the, the last round of discussion. Um, this capybara has, you know, it's, it's, it's presenting also a metric where you can quantify these cell fate transition dynamics. Uh, and then they validated this capybara tool set, um, using hybrid cells from different experimental approaches. One actually that that was really cool was direct reprogramming into cardiomyocytes. And they're able to show that there's actually some unique ventricular atrial hybrid cells that they're able to identify using this capybara methodology uh, that other folks haven't really seen before. And they did some neuronal reprogramming as well. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's, it's another one of those tools that's also freely available. So you can take a look to check it out. But I think the real power here, the real power is the identification of these hybrid states. Okay. 
And like what we're alluding to with fibroblasts, there's a lot of plasticity in these cell types are able to convert back and forth from like activated to quiescent, for example. And then of course, over the course of differentiation, you have a whole spectrum of spelt cell types. And like, I just want to emphasize again, it's not like you start off with stem cell and then you initiate your differentiation and you get your terminally differentiated cell type of interest, right? There's a whole spectrum of hybrid cell types that are in there. And perhaps this capybara approach will help you identify some of those cool cell types. And the caveat with any of these tools and really a lot of these single cell approaches though, it's, it's so dependent on the ancestral data set that you're actually using to teach these tools. So I said it before and I'll say it again, garbage in, garbage out. If you have a not so great data set that you're putting into your capybara tool, then maybe you're not gonna get great results coming out. So that's kind of obvious, but I just wanted to emphasize that. Yes. I, uh, I, this is a, I love reading a paper. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to try that. I'm going to use that tool. So, uh, kudos. Um, my complaint here is I can't say capybara like uh, four or five times in, 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 a, in a, like when I'm having a conversation, we're going to have to abbreviate that. And like you, I'm really curious about the uh, origins there. They're not making it easy. Um, yeah. But the other thing on your point of garbage in garbage out, uh, that's, you know, that's a critical uh, facet of this, and I'm sure acknowledged by the authors. But I, I thought one thing that was notable there is that, yes, of course, the reference set that you use for training um, is key. But here I, I, I saw one of the strengths that the authors noted is that that reference can be really minimal. Uh, you can use a minimum of 30 cells. Um, and so as, as you're talking about all these kind of intermediates and, and the all the cell types that might be out there that we don't appreciate, some of them maybe are, are really rare, right? So I'm impressed that with that minimal threshold that you're able to get something instructive. And I think like, for example, the people in the hematopoietic cell field are gonna go nuts over capybara trying to identify the, the tremendous range of differentiation potential across that spectrum of hematological precursors. So, this is, a, again, as I said at the start, this is a tool that people are firing up all over the globe, going crazy on their data sets, trying to see what they, what they missed before. Yeah, and I think the, applicabil the applicability of a tool is really important and the ease of use. Um, if this is something that you, as somebody who's doing a ton of single cell, can rapidly utilize, that's great. Um, I think a lot of these single cell papers have intentionally tried to make their data sets and their their tools easily accessible to the public, whether it's generating these online, easily accessible data sets with these uh, cool user interfaces uh, that anybody, even independent of using R or whatever, can, can log on and take a look at, or whether it's having a tool like this freely accessible to the public to download. Um, I actually love the single cell field in that way. And in general, the computational biology field, I just feel like they're, they're so friendly and so willing to share their resources and their data with the rest of us. And I think that's how it should be, right? Absolutely. I mean, they know more people that use their tool, uh, the, the greater momentum it builds. I mean, look, just look at Surat. I mean, that's my, my 12 year old is about to get started using Surat. So that really changed the game. <laughs> um, uh, talking about changing the game, you know, we've talked a lot about just how amazingly advanced and close to realization the therapeutic uh, 
applications of cell-based therapies are. Um, one of the great examples of that is in treatment of diabetes, right? We have uh, all these different modalities now that are emerging for treating um, diabetes uh, by replacing the insulin-producing cells. But I think a lot of those really, when we, when we focus on diabetes, we're mostly focused, I think, on type one, where there's a, a loss of these islets, often autoimmune, um, but you know, maybe less recognized um, or less sympathetic, perhaps, is the type two diabetes, ob obesity-linked diabetes that often comes as a consequence of insulin resistance. You know, a lot, a lot of people crying for the type two diabetics, but they should be because it's huge and it's only growing. Um, and then maybe it's in your future listeners, you know, type two diabetes isn't always about um, obesity with the endocrine disruption that's going out there. There's a lot of metabolic disease of unknown etiology. So pay attention. Um, and insulin resistance uh, often causes diabetes because the, the beta cells, they're trying to counteract the re insulin resistance um, to maintain that normal glycemia. And they pretty much get exhausted. Uh, they, they get wiped out and leads to beta cell dysfunction so much so that in fact, by the time type two diabetes is diagnosed, uh, beta cell function is reduced from 50 to 80%. So the cart's already out of the horse and these cells are struggling. So in addition to replacing the islets and beta cells, another really important uh, modality for treating diabetes is improving the beta cell function or, or preserving the function um, of, of beta cells. Um, and one of the ways that you can go about that is, is trying to regulate the metabolism, right? Um, because the, the high energy demand of insulin secretion, it's, it's, it requires a lot of energy. Um, and that it manifests as, uh, using a lot of oxygen, in the mitochondria, right? And that depletion or use of the oxygen leads to a cellular hypoxic phenotype, right? There's the chain of events that leads to activation of hypoxia inducible factor one, which many people, everybody knows. I think uh, Arun, you probably uh, reported on HIF-1-alpha in the heart uh, a few episodes back. Um, and in, in the beta cells, the main impact of HIF-1-alpha is to switch the energy metabolism from mitochondrial respiration to glycolysis. Okay, so the authors here were to, are Teresa Pereira and Perola Bergren um, from the Karolinska Institute. They thought that HIF-1-alpha perhaps led to the beta cell dysfunction through this switch to the, um, from the mitochondrial respiration to glycolysis and thereby contributed to the onset of type two diabetes. Um, and in order to address this, they use this HIF-1-alpha inhibitor. So it's a dual hypothesis that one, HIF-1 was involved and two, using this inhibitor PX478 that they could mitigate this onset. And, and that's what they showed. Uh, they showed in many contexts um, in diabetic mice, that these DBDB mice, that the inhibitor prevented the rise of glycemia and progression of diabetes. Um, in the streptozoticin-induced diabetes model, uh, the same inhibitor improved the recovery of glucose homeostasis. And the reason why we're talking about it in this show is because they also used human islet or organoids. These weren't uh, pluripotent stem cell-derived organoids. Um, they were commercially uh, purchased. 
but in that model, they, they show that those organisms uh, exposed to chronic, chronically exposed to high glucose um, in the context of this inhibitor, they were able to Im improve their glucose-induced insulin secretion. So, I mean, for me, I, I, I think that stories like this deserve uh, a lot of highlights because, you know, we're focused on the end game of cells and human, but, you know, what's been working for decades, you know, century, more than a century, arguably, is the kind of pharma, right? Pharmacological approach, not without its, its issues, of course. I don't know about, you know, inhibiting HIF-1-alpha systemically, but <laughs> uh, I think it's a nice lead on uh, how we may be able to bypass, you know, the, this, this tragic um, dysfunction and deterioration of, of the islets in, in the context of obesity and, and not just obesity, but metabolic disease, which is an increasing problem. I was nodding my head as you said that little note there at the end about the applicability of this, you know, as a small molecule mediated approach to alleviating potentially type two diabetes, because, you know, I don't want to poo poo the study. It's a great study. I think we focus a lot about type one on the stem cell podcast and a lot of the, the stem cell based therapies are for type one, but type two is obviously a huge, huge, huge problem in the world, but utilizing a small molecule mediated approach to target HIF one alpha of all things it's tricky. I'll just say that, right? Because HIF-1, as I've talked about in the show, as you've mentioned, it's involved in so many different pathways, disease states, all that. So having a general, broad pharmacological intervention to regulate HIF-1 in this particular context, yeah, I think having something more targeted is probably the downstream goal of you know this study, probably leading into other studies like it. But yeah, it's... Uh, it's tricky. <laughs> Definitely tricky. I mean, yeah, you and I both know, and everybody knows, HIF-1 alpha is really critical for angiogenesis, right? You know, that's how yep. you, you yep. induce it because there's, there's low oxygen, you need blood vessels. So yeah, I don't know that I'd want to be um, inhibiting, globally inhibiting my angiogenesis because I'm, I'm just a wreck as it is sitting right here. I got some neoangiogenesis popping off, but um, you know, that there is a precedent for this, right? And that's chemotherapy. There's a lot of diseases where you you, you treat with the bludgeon. Um, but yes, diabetes, you wonder here if the, the treatment is worse than the cure. This isn't a, a malignant cancer, right? Although as malignant as diabetes is, uh, there's alternative forms of therapy. So yeah, uh, I, I don't know about the PX478 going directly into, into clinical trials, but you know, with the advent of some of these unique kind of uh, niche specific therapies. We've talked here on the program a bit about the using these uh, programming of cells and CAR T's to deliver therapeutics specifically to an ESR at a threshold. So yeah, I think what, what's notable here is the conceptual uh, insight here that, that HIF-1-alpha is not good for islets and contribute to their dysfunction and maybe in a way that doesn't totally destroy the whole body, we can target that in the pancreas. So who knows? We'll see. Um, someone who can really shed light on how the actual cells uh, are getting into people. Um, it's coming right up, Dr. Kirkaby. But before we get there, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies invites you to find a pathway into the peripheral nervous system 
with stem diff neural crest differentiation kit. Whether you need Schwann cells, sensory neurons, or sympathetic neurons, stem diff neural crest differentiation kit enables high purity generation of neural crest precursors from human pluripotent stem cells. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash NC kit. Just ask Dr. Kirkaby. There's like a ton of intermediate cell types there in the neural space. Stem diff will help you figure it out. All right, everybody we have with us for this episode from Scandinavia, Dr. Agneta Kirkaby, who is associate professor and group leader at the University of Copenhagen and Lund University, a dual appointment there. The Kirkaby group studies the factors involved in human neural subtype specification in order to enable production of specific neurons for understanding and treating neurological diseases. They apply advanced human stem cell models to understand how hundreds of human neuronal subtypes are formed during embryo development. Agnetus, thank you so much for joining us in today's episode. We're so excited to talk to you. Thank you, Dalen. I'm excited to be here. Yes, well, let's uh, just jump right in. And I mean, excuse the pun, but neural is so deep. Uh, speaking of jumping into it, I mean, the, the physiology of the brain in health and disease is super complex. And that's not even getting to the more meta elements of, you know, consciousness, abstract thought, all those real head twisters. Is it, uh, it it's a true miracle of nature and perhaps all the more so for the mystery that's shrouding the function of the brain. So expand on that brief introduction that I gave, which uh, really didn't do you justice. Tell us what distinguishes your lab's approach to unraveling the mysteries of the brain. Yeah, so I guess what we focus on a lot uh, in, in my lab is to try to understand the exact signaling molecules which govern the decision making of those very, very early neural progenitor cells. Actually, even before they even become neural, they make decisions on where in the brain they're going to be located. And if we can understand and control those fine-tuned uh, events that take, that take place extremely early during development, uh, we can become much better at producing different subtypes uh, of neurons from the brain. So I think uh, when human prepotent stem cells were first uh, discovered, you know, there was a lot of excitement because it turned out to be pretty easy to produce neurons from them. It was actually some of the first subtypes that were made. It's, it's kind of like the default pathway. Uh, and, you know, then those neurons were used for a lot of studies. And then it took many years, I think, before the real challenge of creating subtype specific neurons was acknowledged. And uh, we've kind of uh, taken it on as, as one of our tasks to really optimize protocols to produce different subtypes of neurons because it really does matter. Uh, if you're studying Parkinson's disease, uh, you can't just use any neuron which expresses TH. It has to be that authentic midbrain uh, subtype of dopaminergic neurons. Um, if you're studying Huntington's disease and you want to study uh, the degeneration in the striatum, you've got to make the correct subtype of, of authentic MSNs and so on. So uh, this is really uh, why we're digging into this complexity of early brain development, because it is believed that there's maybe more than a thousand different subtypes mm -hmm. of neurons in the adult human brain. Uh, and you can imagine the complexity of trying to control that from a single stem cell source. Yeah, and like you're alluding to, the 
the production and the differentiation protocols for actually making all of these subtypes of neurons have dramatically improved over the course of the last 20 years since embryonic stem cells were first derived. And thanks to the improvement in the differentiation protocols, now we can really focus on the downstream, right? Which is the disease modeling, the clinical therapeutic applications for these stem cell derived neurons, which is you know, what you're focusing on in your lab in the context of neurodegenerative disorders. So I wanted to focus on the, the clinical side of things first. And your lab at Lund University, actually together with the lab of Man Parmar, you're developing a cell therapy for the treatment of Parkinson's. And you're actually making these human dopaminergic progenitor cells from human ESCs for transplantation to replace those lost dopamine neurons, you know, lost in the brains of these Parkinson's patients. So the work, it's resulted in the development of a clinical stem cell product. Is that right? And we're yeah. still anticipating to go into clinical trials in the near future. So this is a really huge unmet need, as we all know, because Parkinson's is debilitating and there's really no effective treatment for the disease. So tell us about the clinical side of your work, the clinical trial and where things are right now. Yeah, right, right. That's correct. So we've been working on many years on optimizing and really fine tuning the differentiation of the uh, midbrain dopaminergic progenitor cells as a potential treatment for Parkinson's disease. Uh, we and others have working on this. Uh, so Lorander uh, entered clinical trial last year and they've entered a clinical trial in Japan. Uh, and in many ways, we're aiming for the same type of cell here, right? That authentic midbrain dopaminergic progenitor cell. Um, and when you're aiming to go into the clinic, suddenly uh, that work that you did to publish the first paper showing that these cells work in, in animal models that you can transplant them, that they're functional and so on suddenly that's not at all enough, right? Even if you have feel you have 80% purity in your, uh, in your protocol, and that seems pretty good, when you want, once you want to take it into patients, you really have to, to fine tune uh, to the differentiation, make sure that you, every time you do it, you get completely reproducible results. You have to make sure every time you transplant a new batch of cells, you get complete functional efficacy. Uh, and getting, you know, getting from that, uh, phase of the protocol from it's good enough, it's good enough to publish and test in an animal model to getting to that phase where it's good enough to put into clinical trial. You know, that's what took us the longest. That last phase probably took us seven years uh, and, and we're still, you know, under evaluation for clinical trial. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's really a lot of uh, tedious work, uh, testing reagents, making sure everything is GMP compatible again and again doing in vivo experiments to make sure that it, it's reproducible. Uh, and a lot of that work is you know, uh, not particularly publishable, uh, but it's necessary if you wanna take that last step uh, into the clinic. So, I mean, it's been a huge uh, learning experience uh, for us, absolutely. And just understanding how you make a product in a way that it's compatible with the long list of requirements from the regulatory uh, authorities. We're still learning actually. Yeah, I mean, we're all learning, right? And 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 hats off to you because I feel like uh, everyone who who is involved in the field is kind of vicariously experiencing the the, the pains um, and the struggles that it takes to move from you know the primary innovation to the actual translation. I wanted to focus on that gap, the gap between innovation and translation, because in this show we only focus on the former, right? We're constantly in awe of the amazingly rapid pace of innovation, whether it's blastoids or chimeras or CRISPR engineered babies. I mean, far out stuff that shouldn't be done, but some rogues are doing um, 
elsewhere and we're hearing about there's a lot of scientific developments both you know sanctioned and unsanctioned that i would have predicted to have come much further down the line so things are, are moving really fast and your work is a great example of the kind of advances that move the needle as i alluded to you're kind of pushing it forward for all of us and going through these trials and, and relatively un on uh you know you're a pioneer i'll say on this path uh one of few um but the, you know the bottom line there is that you take great pains you know in your science to generate the right kind of cell under the conditions the physiological origin conditions right to make the right subtype um and that's what you publish and all under clinically translatable conditions and you know that's that's what people love to see in the journals because it means we're on the cusp and we're on the uh, about to maybe test these cells in humans. But then there's the the pace of innovation versus the pace of translation. Totally different time scale, right? As you just said, and and while the slog of clinical trial registration evaluation marches along, as you just said, seven years down the line, you and others are, are still just innovating away, right? demonstrating first principles for even more specialized differentiation protocols, et cetera. Um, and of course, you know, you can't just revise the protocols in the clinical trial with the latest studies recipe once the patient starts showing up, obviously. Um, and, you know, that being the case, I, I get that this is kind of a silly inquiry or a line of questioning here, considering that we've really put cells into few, so few people that anything, any kind of cell in, in human work right now is really pushing the envelope. But that said, I, do you think, you know, seven years down the line, do you think that the clinical review process would benefit from a quicker turnover? Or on the other hand, do you think that like, we're really at risk here? And if we move too fast, we could end up setting the whole field back? I mean, I, I think the main uh, issue is that we are at the same time as we're learning ourselves, we're also educating the regulators, right? We're dealing with in our case, regulatory authorities that have never had a pluripotent stem cell product uh, on their table, right? So of course, when they see this for the first time, uh, you know, their immediate, the, the work that they do uh, in these authorities is that they have to make sure that we're not putting the patient at any unnecessary risk, right? And when they see something new, immediately, of course, they'll become very cautious and become very worried that there might be some new kind of risk that they don't know from other other cell products. So, uh, you know, you, you see a lot of, of a lot of risk aversiveness, which which I think in some cases uh, can can be can be a hurdle to overcome because we do have to accept that you know there are risks to all treatments and also to these uh, stem cell treatments as long as we address the most important ones, right? That we're absolutely sure we don't get tumors. We're absolutely sure that we don't get. Uh, cell types in the graphs that are detrimental to the to the patient or have some uh, safety issue, but that we have to we have to accept you know that that uh, there are you know there are risks with all kinds of all phase one clinical trials, uh, and that in these innovative treatments we won't be able to address everything uh, before we go into the first patient. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a long process, but I think the Safety is, of course, paramount for all yeah. these clinical trials, as it should be, in my opinion. Um, shifting gears a little bit to the the modeling and in vitro side of things, less away from the 
the clinical side of things. On the stem cell modeling side of things, your lab actually published this really cool paper in Nature Biotech a few years ago that we actually wanted to talk about for a bit. I think we actually covered it on the show on one of our roundup segments, maybe a year plus ago. Um, so you're able to actually model neural tube development by differentiation of human ESCs into this microfluidic Wnt gradient, right? And recapitulating human development in a dish. It's, it's become a red hot topic in the stem cell field. I'm sure it, at ISCCR, the, the annual meeting, it's really going to be a focal point. So we often discuss gastroloids, blastoids, and all these new developmental models on the show. But this seems to be a really neat bioengineering-based approach to generate this model of early human neural development. So definitely a, a very unique approach. So tell us about how this project came about and how you're currently applying this really cool model system. Yeah, so, so this project came about um, because we were interested in kind of understanding the overall patterning, um, the basis of the patterning that governs the whole neural tube or the anterior part of the neural tube. Uh, so we had already, you know, the organoids had come up at that time, um, which really very nicely recapitulate local um, local tissue formation and tissue architectures. So you can make a cortical organoid, or you can then make a, uh, a ganglionic eminence organoid, and you can kind of recapitulate the local environment there. Uh, but what we were missing, given that we're, we were very interested in understanding the overall patterning uh, of different subtypes across the whole brain, we wanted to make a model where we could recapitulate that more global patterning event. Uh, and uh, for model organisms, it's known that these are based on uh, actually rather simple gradients. And I think that's one of the really cool thing about it. You have something, you start out in the embryo with something extremely simple, a couple of gradients in different uh, directions, and you end up with something extraordinarily complex, right? And, and of course we wanted to know how does that happen? How can you start with something that's so simple and end up with something that's so complex? What happens in between? Uh, so we set out to try to see if we could, could we model these gradients in the dish? Um, and of course that, that's one limitation of, of organoids is you can kind of make fusions uh, and you can put two regions together, but it's very difficult to, org to model a, a gradient in an organoid because you have to have controlled flow to model gradients. So we, we set out to make more of a, a flat, uh, flat organoid tissue, you might say, or like a flat neural tissue, because then we could put a flow on top of it and expose it to uh, morphogenic gradients that we see uh, in the early embryo. And we've used this to study the rostrocaudal gradient that controls um, anterior to posterior patterning of, of the neural tube uh, with a wind, with a, an increasing wind uh, gradient. Uh, and it turns out that if you expose a tissue to a morphogenic gradient, the, the outcome that you get is actually not a gradient, but you get the outcome in the form of border formation in the tissue, which is exactly what happens in the embryo. Um, and which is pretty cool that you can actually model that in the dish also. So the cells by themselves convert this gradient information into a uh, regional output with, with border formation. Yeah, I love that story so much because, you know, a classically trained embryologists working with Xenopus, that's like 101. That's the first thing you learn about is the gradients and the rostrocaudal axis, et cetera. Um, and a, a big component of that story that I, I really enjoyed was the 
trying to enforce that gradient extrinsically using this microfluidic controlled stem cell regionalization or, or MISTER as, as, as the acronym goes, device that modulated the activity of signaling pathways at very precise spatiotemporal coordinates. And you could create that flow gradient, right? But as I said, you know, the first thing you learn is that the, and you said it too, the, the gradients are, are simple at the outset, and then they create this amazingly compact, complex milieu, right? I get a headache even thinking about all the overlapping vectors and morphogens that must be present as you move forward in embryogenesis, as you have all these clumps of cells uh, of increasing dimensions and the cells are moving around and the source and the sink constantly dynamic um, in flux. So from a practical standpoint, what I'm asking is, I know this, your study wasn't meant to create a brain or anything, um, but that's what we're talking about more and more, as you alluded to with the assembloids and trying to create more complex higher order tissues. You know, there's two, I guess, schools of thought, and then there's the kind of hybrid in between, which is, can you engineer and enforce the kind of structure and coordinates, or is it more of like, you just, you know, light the fuse, so to speak, or kick the snowball down the hill and it, it accumulates and grows as it goes on its own intrinsic program. Um, from a practical standpoint, in terms of making tissues, and maybe not, this isn't your end point, you're, you're focused on discrete cells, types, that then you can transplant, but just for the field generally, as we move toward trying to make higher order tissues and structures. Um, out of organoids with cells co-mingling together. Do you think that we're gonna be able to impose those gradients as they become more complex? Or do you think we're ultimately gonna to have to use that kind of snowball approach where we, we just get the ball rolling and then kind of let nature or biology take its course? What's your, what's your take on which is the most suitable approach? Well, actually, I, I mean, I think you have to combine the two uh, because I don't think you can force a, a structure of a neural tissue. Uh, you would never be able to force the ventricle or so and the mantle so and the layer formation. You have to make the cells do this by themselves, but you guide them uh, in the beginning. And actually, the model that we've made, we, we impose a gradient, but we release it pretty early. So uh, the gradient is on the cells for nine days, and then we remove it. And then we can culture this tissue for 60 days or more, and they maintain uh, their regionality. Hmm. Right. So, so we actually give them a push in the beginning. We help them direct them towards the different fates because they are lacking the, um, uh, the cues from the embryo, right. Which would normally come from the, um, uh, from the mesoderm lying uh, around the neural tube. So we're kind of, uh, helping them with that initial cue and then nothing else. Then we remove it and then we let the tissue grow on its own because exactly as you say, um, I don't think we should force development. I don't think you can force development. And I don't think that's the point because what we want to do is we want to study development, not study some artificial form of development, right? We want it to, to be as intrinsic as possible. We want the cells to form and follow their own intrinsic program, right? So you're kind of, you're helping them in the very early phases by giving them the positional cue. And then you remove that and you let them do the rest by their own. Uh, so, for instance, what we see in the tissue is that the cells start forming a midbrain hindbrain boundary, and they do this after we have removed the gradient, right? Uh, so, so they they start their own program and they just go on with that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly what we want to study. 
Yeah, I think that hybrid approach is probably, in, in my opinion, the right way to do it. And it's not just in neurodevelopment, but also in my field, cardiovascular development. I think that's the, the approach that's being increasingly taken as well. So certainly a, a popular way to, to approach that. And, you know, we're going to, let's shift a little bit to another sort of neurodevelopmental modeling study. You're actually doing a lot of these in your lab, it seems like. And this is on a topic that I thought was really interesting because we don't cover this a lot on the show, narcolepsy, right? That's one of the interesting applications of your work. You're, um, I actually didn't think this is something you'd be able to model in the first place or study or treat using stem cell derived yeah. neurons. So that's why it caught my eye, but it's something you're focusing on in your lab, right? It's, uh, I think it's something that's caught the attention of popular culture too. It's a debilitating and scary disease. Imagine like falling asleep at the wheel of your car without warning. That's, that's terrifying, right? And it looks like you've got a project generating protocols for actually the production of these HCRT neurons from pluripotent stem cells, which are actually lost in the hypothalamus of patients with type one narcolepsy. And maybe in taking these to the next step and maybe using these as a transplantation therapy by uh, applying them in animal models and so on and regenerating the HCRT sleep circuit, right? I mean, so tell us how you actually got into this, because I've never heard of something like this, you know, utilizing stem cells to model narcolepsy and like where you are currently with the, the clinical applications. So, so just talk to us about this work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I got, I got interested in this because, because it's also a pretty new, new project to us. So we had worked for so long time on generating the dopamine neurons and, you know, optimizing over and over and over again and testing over and over again, over a period of in total uh, 13 years now uh, we're at. And, you know, at some point I was like, uh, I was, I was uh, uh, kind of starting my own group and I felt like I, I got to work with something else also, right? I, I want to try something different. And um, uh, I, I moved to this new institute and at this institute, there is uh, another PI working on narcolepsy and studying the molecular background behind narcolepsy and what happens in the hypothalamus. And it was through her that I got to know that narcolepsy, in fact, is a neurodegenerative disease. Uh, and it's believed to be autoimmune mediated, right? So that it's an autoimmune attack on precisely these hypocretin neurons that are present in the hypothalamus. And, and when you lose these hypocretin neurons, this results in a loss of control of sleep-wake cycle. Uh, so these neurons are really central to the to the sleep wake cycle control, and uh, what's neat about the disease is in the, in the in the from the perspective of a stem cell scientist is that it's a very clean uh, pathology, right? So you lose this type of neurons and then nothing else. I mean, in that sense, you can say something like Parkinson's disease is much more complicated because it progresses and in some patients it actually spreads to the entire brain and other patients it's more limited to the ventral midbrain. But in these narcolepsy patients, it's really very specifically these hypercretin neurons uh, that are lost and which causes the symptoms. And these are young people, children, adolescents, uh, which are affected by the disease and they, are, they have to live with it lifelong, right? They can never get these neurons back. They are on daily medication several times per day. They need to take medication, including also in some cases amphetamine to just keep themselves awake during the day and to keep themselves asleep during the night, right? So, so it's extremely debilitating. Um, and uh, of course, given the background that we had, we thought, well, can we perhaps produce these neurons and could they, could they potentially be used as a cell therapy uh, for nar narcolepsy? So, We've embarked on this uh, whole venture of understanding the hypothalamus, and it turns out the hypothalamus is 
excessively complex. It's a tiny, tiny structure, and it contains hundreds of different subtypes of pep peptidergic neurons, uh, each of them present in, in quite low uh, amounts and scattered among each other, right? So the ventral midbrain is much more easy to understand in that sense. You have like a small cluster of the dopaminergic neurons, you know where they are, you know where they came from. So we've actually spent um, almost three years now just trying to understand uh, what progenitors are present in the hypothalamus, what progenitors will generate which neurons, how can we optimize protocols to make uh, the different subregions of the hypothalamus. Um, and we're focusing actually not, so one of these projects is focused on the hypocretinurins for transplantation. We've done our first transplantations and see we, we can actually generate these neurons. Now we need to generate a rat model of narcolepsy because we're also lacking that. Uh, so uh, that, that's the second part of the project. But we're also focusing on generating neurons that are involved in appetite regulation. So uh, part of my lab is placed in Denmark and Denmark has a long history of focusing research on metabolic disorders and um, uh, type two diabetes. Uh, and uh, so we have, we have many research groups here studying appetite regulation, um, metabolic regulation of the body. Uh, and more and more this research, which for many years has been focused on what's going on in the, in the fat cells, what's going on in the uh, beta cells, what's going on in the muscle cells. A lot of this research has now moved into the brain uh, because uh, GWAS data combined with single cell RNA sequencing data has shown that uh, the vast majority of SNPs that uh, predisposition you for obesity and type 2 diabetes are located in the brain, are located in cells that uh, are expressed in cells of the brain and in, neuron, in neuronal subtypes. And of course, one region here, which is important, is the hypothalamus, uh, where many of the appetite regulating uh, neurons are located. So this is both a, a, a way to, to um, to produce new uh, neurons for potentially treating narcolepsy, but also to produce neurons that could be used for uh, screening of appetite uh, regulating drugs and understanding the molecular mechanisms behind the appetite regulation. You're doing it all, going after it with the hypothalamus. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you with the narcolepsy, the, the narcolepsy they say is very, very bad for the sleep-wake cycle, but I would argue maybe it's just Copenhagen. I, I have a half sister. <laughs> in Copenhagen. And though I've only been there once, it's it's at the top of my list because when I visited, I, I hardly slept. I mean, I, I don't think it was acute <laughs> narcolepsy. I think it was the town. Um, but your appointments there and at Lund seem like a really good fit for you, uh, not just because you, know, you have uh, deep Scandinavian roots there, but there's a really rich pedigree at these institutes, uh, including, I think most notably, uh, the work of Arvid Carlson, in your case, who, who won the Nobel Prize for his study of the nervous system, specifically including the discovery of dopamine, which you have a, a very clear vested interest in. Um, incidentally, and this was a surprise to me, uh, this ex-former uh, Supreme Court Justice, rest in peace, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Honorable RBG, actually went to Lund, who knew? Um, and just like you, she I didn't had, know that. Did you not know that? Well, you <laughs> no, guys I didn't are, know that. there's a symmetry <laughs> with you. You have a similar uh, quiet, uh, badass intensity, I would say, as, as RBG. <laughs> um, but I mean, the bottom line I'm trying to ask here is wh why do you love it there? I mean, you've, you've circled back to your roots there. Why do you love working where you do? And what are the, what are the advantages and or the challenges 
when it comes to translating the work? I mean, you're in the midst of this uh, clinical trial review. Um, is there anything unique about the, the process you think that that is, you know, positions you bet better or worse? Yeah, so so I am. Um... Uh, I was in Lund uh, for many years at Lund University after I finished my PhD. And uh, what attracted me to Lund was really that Lund, of all the Scandinavian universities, Lund really had a long um, history of, of stem cell research. In Denmark, there was nothing at the time. I mean, really nothing. Um, uh, and Lund ha had been working on this for many years. And Lund, when we talk about the Parkinson's disease, had really been pioneering the fetal tissue transplantations in Parkinson's disease, uh, as well as having many stem cell groups studying both neural development, uh, but also uh, blood development and, and other tissues. So it was really, uh, for Scandinavian standards, really a hub uh, for, for stem cell research, and in particular in the neural field. So, so being in Lund, I think, is the, the perfect place, right? When, when you're in this field of neuro and, and stem cells, uh, there's really a lot of, of good, uh, lot of good groups there. Um, and, you know, I, I loved it in Lund. I'm still in Lund. And now I've transitioned also to, to Copenhagen. I mean, being Danish myself, of course, uh, it attracted me to be back at my roots. I have three kids also, and that, of course... Uh, plays a role when you're trying to balance uh, life, uh, life work, uh, the life work balance. Um, and I have to say having uh, grandparents just, uh, you know, five kilometers away makes a big difference when you're building up your group and you have to work late hours that you can, you can call family and say, look, can you take the kids? Cause I'm going to be busy. Uh, that, that really does make, make a big difference. Right. So, so for me, uh, uh, it's been kind of the perfect place. I also have to say, I mean, at the moment, Scandinavia, it's a very good place to be funding wise. Uh, we have quite a lot of big uh, um, funding uh, or uh, grant uh, organizations, uh, the Novo Nordisk Foundation, the Wallenberg Foundation, which are which are pretty big uh, funders of of um, of science. So uh, it's actually a very it's a very beneficial environment to be in when you're a researcher at the moment, especially in the health uh, science area. Yeah, I think the success is always partially driven by the environment in which a talented person is placed in. And I think you found a really great Goldilocks zone over there. And I agree with yeah. you hundred percent when it comes to the importance of having grandparents nearby as a, <laughs> as a father of an 18 month old, I completely appreciate that. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm a new PI, right? So I'm always impressed by PIs like Dalen mentioned, who's there, who are able to do everything, a little bit of everything, it seems like what you're doing and balancing multiple projects all under the same broad topic or organ of interest, the brain in your situation. Um, you know, you're studying all these different types of neurodegenerative diseases and you're focused on so many of these diseases, like what we've talked about here on the show under the same umbrella. And just looking at your lab website and just recapping some of the stuff we talked about here today, we've talked about like Parkinson's, you know, uh, Alzheimer's, neurohypothalamic neuronal dysfunction leading to narcolepsy, even modeling fetal brain development using your MISTER system, right? And what I'm wondering is this, how do you balance so many di different disease pathologies and 
working on so many different diseases without losing a focus, right? I know there are PIs who say only work on Parkinson's or only work on Alzheimer's, but you're not afraid to take on multiple diseases at once. So tell us about that approach and how you stay focused and maybe some new, maybe some tips for like PIs like myself who are just getting started, you know, who are trying to stay focused and, and try to say stain insane right <laughs> yeah i mean I, I think you're making a very good point and you know i often ask myself oh i've taken on too many diverse projects should i try to focus more and you know it's uh i guess i ended up here because it interests me right and um the the red line uh, of all our projects is that we are good at producing subtype specific neurons and we use this as kind of a tool to work with others that are experts in those specific diseases, because I don't feel I'm an expert in either disease, right? But what I'm good at is making that tool, which is crucial for us to study the disease or to treat the disease. Um, so in all of these projects, we have crucial uh, collaborative partners that we work with, where our role is to make the neurons and kind of set up the model. Uh, and then we work with partners that are that are experts in you know, Alzheimer's disease or uh, appetite uh, regulation or narcolepsy or, uh, you know, in, in Parkinson's, we work with all the clinicians at, at Lund University. So uh, I think, you know, you definitely can't be an, an expert in everything. That's just impossible. You're, you're going to drown and not be good at, at anything. So what we do is we focus on what we are good at, and that's really producing the different neural subtypes. And I think in many ways we do, we do the we do that job, which many other labs maybe try to avoid, which is really doing that uh, protocol optimization where you test again and again and again until you really think it's perfect. Uh, and we do that because we think to make really good disease modeling, and especially if you want to use it for uh, transplantation therapy, if you want to use it for transplantation therapy, there is no way around it, right? You really do have to spend those years uh, on optimizing the protocol. And, and that's where, that's kind of the red line between uh, all, our, all, all our projects. And then we make sure to have those experts on the side that help us. And, you know, I can maybe also just mention that um, with regards to, to uh, the environment that I'm in, we, we've just started this new uh, center, which is led by Melissa Little, which you had on your uh, podcast just re recently. Um, and uh, this is actually a center which is focused on uh, translation, right? So that's kind of the, 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 the overall aim of the, the projects within the center. Uh, the center is called Renew and it's actually a consortium of both University of Copenhagen, uh, the uh, LUMC in Leiden in Netherlands, as well as the MCRI at uh, Melbourne in Australia. And what brings all these groups together, it's various different tissues, various different disease indications, but the overall aim for all groups is to use stem cells to create uh, new therapies that can go into the clinic. And I would say again, that's also really the aim of all our projects that we're, that we're doing in, in my lab. Yeah, I, I'm glad to hear you put into words what I guess has been a theme that we've been revisiting more and more in terms of the teams that you need to, to bring these therapies into reality. We talked about it with Dr. Little um, just last episode, I think it was, uh, 
But yeah, we're not talking, it used to be this idea of like disease. You were an expert in a disease and you were meant to know everything soup to nuts about that disease. That was, that was the expectation. But now, given the diversity of scientists and expertise out there, we're talking more about like processes, right? As you're alluding to, like you, you have expertise in a process and that lane that you stay in can pass through many different diseases and that expertise is really essential. And in fact, the, the, the sum of expertise that you need to bring any of these things to clinic is perhaps too much for any one group. And we got to integrate all these different types of specialities. So I think that that really is, again, underscoring what we've been hearing more and more, in particular from Dr. Little about Renew, as we're on the cusp of these therapeutic bombshells, um, the, the teams that are necessary to build it. And I wouldn't say the subjugation of ego, but the ability of all these high powered PIs to get in their lane all towards a common goal. So I, I, I loved hearing you say that. And, uh, you know, spring, spring off of that, we're going to get into a bit of a science peripheral line of questioning here. Uh, first, starting with some more advice that you might be able to give our listeners. What, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, either professional or not? I think uh, probably the best piece of advice is certainly when becoming a, a PI and realizing all the tasks that you're asked to take on constantly, right? And <laughs> reviewing this and reviewing that and supervising this and doing this teaching and that teaching. And it can often overwhelm you because there's a lot of things you have to do. So I, uh, I think the best piece of advice I got is uh, say no when it doesn't feel right. Hmm. So I'm, I'm trying to listen to that daily. <laughs> <laughs> Just say no. I'm glad you didn't say no to this interview because we're having a good time. Um, <laughs> that felt finally, right. <laughs> I hopefully it hasn't been too painful. Um, finally, we got a, a few fill in the blanks here for you. Uh, first, when I am not conducting research, I am. Uh, I'm taking care of my kids. <laughs> <laughs> yes, taking care of yourselves, taking care of your trainees and you're just taking care of everybody. You can't say no to that one, I'm afraid, Agnes. No. Uh, next, if I could have one superpower, it would be? Oh, that would definitely be to stop time. Mm. Several times per day, I wish I could stop time. <laughs> yes, time control. That's a tough one. You got to talk to Dr. Strange about that one. Last but not least, if I, oh, I cannot start the day without without a uh, bike ride and a coffee and a croissant. That's how I start all my mornings. <laughs> nice. I love the routine. Uh, whatever it takes to get you going, I get that we're on board. Um, and thank you so much for, for sharing not only your daily routine, but all of your science and your expertise. And, uh, you know, it's just so exciting to have someone on the show that's really pushing the needle forward in terms of clinical translation, just to get a, a bit of the, the reality of it. You know, it's been a long time that you've been working on this and, you know, all credit to you, you've been doing a million other things as well. But we really appreciate, I think all of us as a scientific community really appreciate the, the foot soldiers who are out there really on that slog, getting cells into humans. Thank you so much for your work and thanks for sharing today. 
All right, guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com. To get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers, you can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks for joining us for this episode, guys. I love hearing from people that are on the cusp of translational science and who are moving the needle forward. And Dr. Kirkaby certainly was that. A fun chat. Hope you guys will tune in for the next episode in a couple weeks. Thanks again for listening.